back a lot of memories when you have you're a preacher and you have five girls and uh, and uh, piano lessons and stuff like that and and then uh, you have them up there singing like stair steps when they're little like these girls and uh, it brings back a lot of memories and brush arbors and all kinds of stuff. But, uh, well, don't be frightened by all this stack of papers here. I counted this morning and uh, I, I, you know, just trying to cover some of the stuff that I wanted to make sure I touched on, and I counted 23 pages. Uh, I, I, these these were handwritten notes that I had intended to give to Bev for typing, and I I decided, you know, I, I'm I'm just not going to do that right now. I, I just need to wrap this up. We've already talked about the inspiration of God's Word, and I want you to remember this one thing: when we talk about the inspiration of the Word, we're not talking about the writers being inspired. Now, that's a more important point than what you might think. It's not the writers who were inspired. The writers, according to Peter, were moved by the Holy Ghost. In other words, like the wind catching the sail of a ship. In other words, the Spirit of God was directing them to do this. But the words, the Scriptures themselves, were inspired of God. Inspired means God breathed. The Word was given by the breath of God. God spoke, and there was the Word. So we talked about the inspiration of the Bible, and the Bible's very clear about that fact. Uh, I wanted to cover, after that, the formation of the Bible, because it is absolutely so astounding. And I've alluded to a few of the things already, but, you know, you... You think about God even wanting to communicate with man. Isn't that an awesome thought? God would say, you know, remember, we're on an entirely different level than God. We've always been. We always will be. We'll never be the equal of God. And for God to say, I created Adam, and here's Adam and Eve, I want to communicate with them. And to think about God still communicating with us today. And the fact is, God has communicated with Adam, with Eve, with Cain, and right on down through. He communicated with people, sometimes by just directly speaking to them, and dreams and visions and all different things. But then God communicated to man by man. And we call those men, for the most part, prophets. God's spokesman, His mouthpiece. And so God would speak to a man and then through that man to other people. And it's, it's amazing how that God gave His Word over a period of like 1,500 years and about 
40 different men living in different countries. And we're talking about, you know, some of the men being fishermen and tax collectors and kings and statesmen and scholars, all different kinds of men, each one writing separately, not only in separate places, but different subjects and at different times in history. And over 1,500 years, they get through with all of the writing. You put it together and you've got the Bible. Amazing how God formed the Bible. The Old Testament, of course, is where it started, right? And the Word of God was given to man, and we mentioned this already, and important to remember that the oracles were committed to who? To the Jews. So God gave His Word to the Old Testament Jews. Now, after that, let me, let me lay aside some things I want to refer to later, and I don't want to get them mixed up. And I, I keep holding this stack here because there's some quotes I want to give you in, in a little while, and I can't remember them. So it's written or given to the Jews, written by the prophets, cared for by the scribes. Now keep in mind, those original manuscripts were written on animal skin. Parchment and vellum, which was a, was a finer, higher grade, but on animal skins. And so God gives the Jews His Word, and, and the people called the scribes, and, and I, I'm striving to help even these young kids to understand this. The scribes were given the responsibility of caring for them. They were to protect them and to hand them down. And on some occasions, even to teach them to others. Here, here, here is one of the quotations I want to give. This is out of H.S. Miller's book, General Biblical Introduction. And, and he talks about here how the, the rules that govern the action of the scribes. He said, The parchment must be made from the skin of clean animals, must be prepared by a Jew only, and the skins must be fastened together by strings taken from clean animals. Number two, each column must have no less than 48 nor more than 60 lines, and the entire copy must be first lined. The ink must be of no other color than black, and it must be prepared according to a special recipe. No word nor letter could be written from memory. The scribe must have an authentic copy before him, and he must read and pronounce aloud each word before writing it. He must reverently wipe his pen each time after writing the word for God. And he must wash his whole body before writing the name Jehovah, lest the holy name be contaminated. Strict rules were given concerning forms of the letters, spaces between the letters, words and sections, the use of the pen, the color of the parchment, etc., the revision of a roll must be made within 30 days after the work was finished, otherwise it was worthless. One mistake on a sheet condemned the, the whole sheet. If three mistakes were made on any page, the entire manuscript was condemned. Number eight, every word and every letter was counted, and if a letter were omitted, an extra letter inserted, or if one letter touched another, the manuscript was condemned and destroyed at once. And then he makes this statement. He says, some of these rules may appear extreme and absurd, but 
or yet, they show how sacred the holy word of the Old Testament was to its custodians, the Jews, and they give us strong encouragement to believe that we have the real Old Testament, the same one which our Lord had and which was originally given by inspiration of God. Benjamin Wilkinson said, by the time of Christ, the Old Testament was in a settled condition. I can go on and on talking about that, and it is a fact. When we talk about the Old Testament, understand this. Whether you're talking about the translators of the King James Version or the New Versions or anywhere in all of Christendom, there is absolutely no debate with anybody who claims to believe the Bible at all that the Masoretic text of the Old Testament is the proper text. So that is settled. All of the controversy we face today has to do with the New Testament. And this is where the battle rages. And it's the, the battle has to do with what text is the proper text to be used. And, of course, whenever we all of a sudden got all of these many versions, and someone has estimated now that there's probably over 300 different English versions of, of the Bible. And so naturally people are confused. But understand this, that every version comes from one of two streams of manuscripts. And I'm going to, I'm going to have Henry and, and Russell to hand out some here in just a little bit, but I want them to wait on that because you'll be looking at it now, and I, I don't want you to look at it until later on. But the Old Testament then is settled. All of the versions that we have today all come from one of two different manuscripts. Now, Remember, kids, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, a few verses in Aramaic, the New Testament entirely in Greek. And so we're talking about the Greek language, and we have a lot of different manuscripts. That is the writings. And it goes all the way back to the original writings. I mean, this is where, where it all started, the originals, right? Now... Later on, I'm going to talk about the preservation of the Bible, but I want you to remember this before we get there. If all we talk about in having the Word of God are the originals, you've heard people say, the original manuscripts say, how do they know? They've never seen them, and they don't know anyone that's ever seen them. And do you understand there's never been a person on the face of this earth at any time in history that ever saw all of the original manuscripts together at the same time? Talking about Old and New Testament, it's never been seen by anybody. So when we talk about the preservation of God's Word, which I'm going to do in just a little bit, when we talk about God preserving His Word, understand that it has to be in some form other than the original manuscripts because we've never had them. Peter, James, and John never had all of the original manuscripts. Well, maybe I should... Well, never had all the originals, that's for sure. Because by the time of John, remember, the Old Testament copies, they, Old Testament copies have been copied by the scribes from the what? From the originals. So they still didn't have the originals. So you have the original manuscripts and then the copies of the originals and then you have the copies of the copies and then you have the translations into other languages. 
Now, that's where we're going tonight. We're talking about right now the formation of the Bible, and we'll look at that in just a little bit. But when we talk about the Bible, how do we know we have the Bible? Think about it. How do you know you have the Bible? Now, I I had an entire message on why I believe the Bible. Now, I don't have any doubt in my mind. This is the Word of God. I don't have a question mark in my mind. This is God's Word. But how is it that we can say with assurance that God has preserved His Word? You know... For a lot of years, this was not even a subject of debate. Please understand that. I mean, in in, in just the last hundred years or so, or or in reality less than that, I guess, uh, all of a sudden now we're debating whether we have the Word of God because it was just absolutely a a given that we have the Word of God. But now here we are. In, in a battle for the Bible, trying to prove that we have God's Word. George Barna and his associates did some research, and th- these are shocking. But it reveals that 71% of Americans reject the concept of absolute truth. Isn't that amazing? Now, here's something more amazing than that. And that is, to make matters worse, 62% of those who claim to be born again say there is no such thing as absolute truth. How can that be? They would tell you, I've been born again, I'm a Christian, I'm on my way to heaven, but I don't believe that there's any such thing as absolute truth. That that just uh, amazes me. Edward Glenny of Central Baptist Seminary wrote, The doctrine of preservation of Scripture is not a doctrine that is explicitly taught in Scripture, nor is it the belief that God has perfectly and miraculously preserved every word of the original autographs in one manuscript or text type. It is a belief that God has providentially preserved His Word in and through all the extant manuscripts, versions, and other copies of Scripture. God has wonderfully and providentially preserved His Word in the multiplicity of extant manuscripts. No passage of Scripture promises this, but the evidence of history leaves no doubt that such is the case. Now, I've got a question. Does that sound confusing to you? Well, it should. It sounds crazy to me. Now, this is a, this is a guy that's teaching young preachers. And, and he's saying that in order, to, in order to know the truth, we have to read and, and compare over 5,000 manuscripts, most of which don't even agree with one another. I mean, if you look into the nuts and the bolts of what he just said there, that's exactly what he's saying. That you've got to look at all of this evidence and compare all of that. And, you know, how could I ever know if my conclusion is correct? Well, 
It's easy to see why people are confused, right? It is for me because a lot of preachers today especially don't even want to deal with this issue. It scares them to death. The question is, did God promise to preserve His Word? Turn in your Bibles. I'm just going to let the Bible speak for itself, basically. And we're going to look at some Scriptures in rapid-fire succession with a few comments. And I want you to see what the Bible says about it. Psalms 12, verse 6 and 7. The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace of earth purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. That's as clear as the nose on your face. It tells us that God's Word is what? Perfect and preserved. Now, here's the problem. Many of the modern versions tell us that this is a reference to God's people, not to God's Word. And I'm supposed to stand up here? Let's say that on one Sunday I preach from the King James Version, the next Sunday I preach from the NIV, and these kids are listening to me, And one Sunday, I'm talking about this having reference to the Word of God. And the next Sunday, I'm talking about it having reference to the people of God. In fact, when you really look at the context of this whole thing, I mean, listen, somebody's wrong somewhere. And you look at the context of it here, It cannot speak about anything other than the Word of God. Now, I can go into the details and give you the reason why they say it's not, and it has to do with the feminine use of some of the words and what have you. And they say, well, that means it has to refer to a clause or a statement prior to the reference to the Word. And so that means it's the people that are being promised preservation and not the Word of God. But what they don't tell you is that same form of writing is followed many other places in the Psalms, and they don't use that argument in those cases. So if they don't use it there, why do they use it here? They use it here because it's an attack, whether intentional or unintentional, it's an attack on God's Word. Besides, the whole context shows that it's the words of men that are contrasted with the Word of God in all of this. But let's just throw that out. Let's say that's not even a controversial issue. Let's say the modern verses and the King James Version all agree on that, okay? Does God... Promise to preserve His Word. Psalms 119, verse 152. Concerning thy testimonies, I have known of old that thou hast founded them. Founded what? The testimonies of God. That's another word used in reference to His Word, His testimonies. I have known of old that thou hast founded them forever. Now, contrary to what a lot of people think, you know, even though knowledge is increasing in many ways, man's getting dumber, not smarter. Notice the psalmist says here that he knew this of old, that God had given His Word and that God would do what? That God would keep it and preserve it forever. 
Psalms 119, verse 160. Thy word is true from the beginning, and every one of thy righteous judgments endureth forever. Now, notice the first part of that verse tells us, as some would say, the Bible is true from cover to cover, as the old preacher said. But the second part refers to the various parts or the sections of the Word, and what? Assures us that they will endure forever. Isaiah chapter 40, verse number 8, The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the Word of our God shall stand forever. That doesn't even need any explanation. That's clear as a bell. Isaiah 59, verse 20 and 21, And the Redeemer shall come to Zion, and unto them that turn from transgression in Jacob, saith the Lord, As for me, this is my covenant with them, saith the Lord, my spirit that is upon thee, and my words which I have put in thy mouth shall not depart out of thy mouth, nor out of the mouth of thy seed, nor out of the mouth of thy seed, seed, saith the Lord from henceforth. How long, Lord? Notice, and forever. So this is a promise that extends from one generation to another generation forever. Again, clear. Well, let's go to the New Testament. Matthew chapter 4 and verse number 4. You're familiar with this, no doubt. Speaking in regards to the Lord Jesus Christ and His moment of temptation there by Satan. And Jesus says, but... He answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Now, you first read that and you think, Well, what does that have to do with preservation? Well, D.A. Waite wrote, he said, It's written, notice this phrase, It's written. Now, I'm not a Greek scholar, but he is. It's written. That is in the perfect tense, which means it has been written in the past. It stands written now and preserved until the present time. In other words, God didn't just write it. God has also kept it. And so it should not surprise you that in the modern versions, they leave out these words, but by every word of God. Why? Why would you leave that out? You would leave it out only if you wanted to try to prove that the Bible does not teach the preservation of the Scripture. Matthew 5.18 Jesus again, For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law, till all be fulfilled. Now notice, jot and tittle. You know, and, and this was used, by the way, in the Hebrew language. It didn't have jots and tittles in the Greek. So this is a reference uh, specifically to the Old Testament here, and the jot's like an apostrophe or a comma, and the tittle is just a tiny little, uh, tiny little mark or, or whatever differentiating in words here. And, and he says, not one jot nor one tittle will fail until all be fulfilled. Matthew twenty four thirty five: Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. I don't know how it could get any clearer than that. We could talk about the Great Commission, by the way, and I'm not even going to go into, into that. But if you will study it and think about it, you'll see that God's Word must be preserved because that He gave the commission to the church 
and the church is to operate until the end of the age. And what are they to do? Well, make disciples, baptize them, and do what? Teach them what? The all things. Well, if we don't have the all things, how are we going to teach the all things? Then in 1 Peter chapter 1, and to me this is one of the clearest of all. 1 Peter 1 verse 23. Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the Word of God which liveth and abideth forever. For all flesh is as grass, and all of the glory of man is the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away. But the Word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the Word which by the Gospel is preached unto you. Couldn't be much clearer than that. Henry, if you and Russell would pass out the copy of that sheet that I gave you a while ago. Now, we've been talking so far about the promise of preservation. Now, I just absolutely don't see how anybody can have a problem with that. Is there any, let me just ask this question. Is there anyone here that just does not believe the Bible gives a promise of preservation? Anyone? I mean, does that or does that not confirm the fact that God promised He's going to preserve His Word? Okay, then I think we're all in agreement with that. God said, I'm going to, I'm going to preserve my Word. So let's think about the providence of its preservation. How did God do what He promised He would do? Now, let's start on common ground. Start with the facts that every Christian ought to agree on. These three things. Number one, God inspired the original manuscripts. I mean, if you don't believe that, then you have to deny all of the evidence and you're calling God a liar. So we all agree God inspired all of the original manuscripts. Number two, let's all agree we don't have any original manuscripts. Number three, translating from one language to another is difficult. It's difficult because it's not always possible to find a word in one language that corresponds exactly to what's said in another language. Now, by that, I simply mean that, for example, many times one Greek word, for us to put it over into our English language, we might have to use three or four English words to convey the meaning of that one Greek word. So it's not as easy as we might suppose. Now please understand what I'm about to say. We do not believe that the translators of the King James Version were guided in the exact same way as the original writers. I I mean, maybe you believe that. I don't. And I know of very few people that believe that. There is a fringe group out there that actually believes that. 
that God inspired these King James translators just like He did the original writers. They would tell you that the English version of the Bible is more accurate than the Greek version or just as accurate and so forth. And it, well, it gets crazy. And I, I'm, I don't want to go there. You'll just be more confused than ever. Now, let's go back to where I started out there. Two, two streams of manuscripts. Remember, the Old Testament is settled. If you look in the left-hand column, I was sitting there that day and thinking, how in the world can I get this across in a way that, that ought to be easy for everybody to understand? And so I just started writing and took a pen and drew what's supposed to be a river with a little stream going off of it. Now, the, you notice the stream going off of it is smaller, right? And that's because it represents the line of manuscripts used in all of the modern versions. Look up at the beginning in the left-hand column. We have the original manuscripts, the copies, and the copies of the copies. Notice there's 5,255 Greek manuscripts of the New Testament and Greek lectionaries, and those lectionaries, young people, that was bits and pieces of Scripture. It's Scripture, but it's not in the Bible form. It's Scripture that was intended as a lesson or memorization or something like that. About 90% of all of these manuscripts that we have contain a particular Greek text that resembles the kind of text used for the King James Version. And this was the kind of text that was used by the true Churches, And you'll notice I've got 312 A.D. and the Byzantine text there that has reference to the Byzantine Empire. And if you go back and do some history work, you'll see that this is during the time frame that it not only existed, but the time when the true churches were located within that empire. And they all retained and all believed and used this particular Greek text, these manuscripts. Now, notice that the littler stream starts at a point above. Notice where it says Erasmus, Greek Bible. And this was, this was uh, the work of Erasmus, and it was the text using uh, what had been called the Byzantine text. Before that, notice there is the Vatican Codex, that that's easy to imply. Why did they call it that? Because that's where it's located in the Vatican. The Sinaitic Codex that was found on Mount Sinai, the Alexandrian Codex, this, this has reference to certain manuscripts that came out of Egypt. And then you have the Latin Vulgate. Let's go on down. Reims Dewey, that's the English version. That is the Catholic Bible, the Roman Catholic Bible. By the way, though, the Greek Catholics went down the other road. It's the Roman Catholics that went down the road that I'm showing you now. Then you have Westcott and Hort. Let me jump over there and come back to that in a little bit because this is where the real confusion started. Going back to the other side, you have the Erasmus Greek Bible, Luther's Bible, Tyndall's English Bible, I wish I had time. We had Jewel Smith here some years ago. 
Jewel Smith had one of the best Bible collections in all of the world. He's dead now. He's a good friend of mine, and, and, and I'd known him for many years. We'd had him when I pastored in Cincinnati, a brilliant man, a historian, and had this collection. We had it, in other words, it was guarded all night long, never a time when we left it alone here. And we'd even notified the police whenever he was in town while all this was going on. It was such a valuable collection. And it was amazing, the information that he had. And in each instance here, he was able, just even from memory, to give you the history of all of these. And it's... it's and this is all information that's readily available to anybody that wants to wants to find it. You just don't find it in the modern-day bookstores for the most part. And there's a reason for that. Stephen's text in the Geneva Bible, and in 1611 was the King James Version of the Bible. That is one of the most remarkable stories that you'll ever read. Those translators. Now, people have done everything they could to try to discredit the King James Version There have been some that suggested, well, King James was a homosexual. So how do you answer that? Now remember, all King James did was authorize it. In other words, allow these men to do it. He didn't do it. I told somebody one time, well, it wouldn't have been a problem anyway. If God can speak through Balaam's ass, He can speak through some queer king. I mean, if God wants to do it, He can do it. Now, I use that terminology to make a point. To please understand, I'm not trying to be needlessly offensive, but it is offensive to me when somebody says God did not preserve His Word. That offends me. Amen. So you have the King James Version. There's never been a time when so many qualified, brilliant scholars were gathered together and worked together on any kind of a project. You, you read Benjamin Wilkinson's book and several other books on the translators of the, of the King James Version of the Bible, and it'll just blow you away when you compare them to what is the so-called scholars that prepared the modern versions of the Bible. Now, let's go back to the other side. You've got the Reims-Dewey Version. This is, of course, the Roman Catholic Version. Westcott and Hort. I wish I had time to really talk about them. Let me see if I can if I can find what one writer said in regards to them because it's unbelievable that uh, just unbelievable that to think about these kind of men being used to to do an accurate translation of God's word. Westcott denied the truthfulness of the first three chapters of Genesis, and Hort embraced Darwin's theory of evolution. Benjamin Wilkinson wrote, Both rejected the atonement of the substitution of Christ for sinners or vicarious atonement. Both denied that the death of Christ counted for anything as an atoning factor. They emphasized atonement through incarnation. Man, I mean, you've got to be way out in left field to believe something like that. And you expect me to believe what these people wrote? 
Now, let, let me just try to sum all of this up. Let's go back to our sheet. Look at the bottom. Now, this, this is why I've got a problem. And I, I'm, I, I really, I, I try to have a good attitude and not be cantankerous. And by the way, you're free to read what, you can read the funny papers if you want. You're free to read whatever you want to read, folks. But whenever I say that I only use the King James Version, I believe it is the most accurate translation of all of the translations in the English language that have ever been made. I think I've got good reason for that, and that's why we only allow our teachers and preachers, if preachers coming, if I don't know him, that's the first question I'm going to ask him, version of the Bible. And, uh, I mean, I, I want to know, and it, it can't be anything other than the King James Version of the Bible. Now, notice here, the NIV removes 64,576 words. It removes 17 verses, and 45 if you count those that have been kicked down to the footnotes, and other major portions of at least 147 verses. The NIV also says that the most reliable early manuscript omits Mark 16, 9 through 20. In other words, they're suggesting you just ignore it, that it wasn't in the original manuscripts, and so, you know, that you, you can ignore that, just rip it out of your Bible. And repeatedly, it disagrees with the King James Version. Now, folks, we just got two options here. Either God kept His promise to preserve His Word, or He did not keep His promise to preserve His Word. His Word has to be preserved either in the Texas Receptus, or it has to be preserved in this other line of older manuscripts. Now, this is where the argument is. They say, well, see, we've got these older manuscripts, and, and, and the translators of the King James Version and those others, they didn't use these, and so we've got, you may have the majority on your side, but we've got the older ones, and the older ones have to be better. Wait a minute. Is that the criteria that we're going to use? It's older, it must be better? Please understand, those older manuscripts were, were available to these translators over here on the left-hand side of your page. They were available, at least a lot of them were. They chose not to use them because they considered them to be corrupt. They refused to use them. So, you come along down here, 18, 1870, West Court and Hort, these people that believe all the nonsense that I just mentioned. And they come along and they tell us that we've been without the true Bible for all of these hundreds of years. Notice it would be a thousand years. They're saying we had no infallible Bible until we, Westcott and Hort, till we restored the correct text for a thousand year period, there was no accurate copy of God's Word. That's what they're saying. And every one of the modern versions anymore are based on the West Court and, and Westcott and Hort text. Does nobody else see a problem with that? How can, you know, how can we tell our kids this book I hold in my hand is the very Word of God. You can trust it. You can rely on it. You can depend upon it. It's God's holy, infallible Word of God. 
And then another preacher gets up next week and he's using a different version of the Bible and he gets up and says, I've, this is God's holy, infallible Word. Wait a minute. Even these kids have got enough sense to know that they don't agree. And not in just a few instances, over and over and over again, they do not agree. Both of them absolutely cannot be God's holy, infallible words. Some of them must be corrupt, at least in some places. My good friend, been a friend for many years, I've preached for him. I've lost track of all of the occasions I've preached for Brother E.L. Bynum in Lubbock, Texas, and Brother Bynum, I've been dear friends, and he's preached for me. He's preached here, in fact. And in the upper right-hand column, Brother Bynum sums it up as well as I know could be said. It is our belief that God has providentially preserved His inspired Word in the Old Testament Masoretic text and the New Testament in the Texas Receptus and Young people, Texas Receptus means the received text. That's the text that was acknowledged by the true churches as being the true text. We also believe that the King James Version is a true and faithful translation of these two providentially preserved texts. We are not in favor of changing one verse or one word, but believe it needs to be used just as it has come to us. Now let me tell you, uh, I have preacher friends, I have dear friends, and a lot of people that use other versions. In fact, I'll tell you that the majority of the so-called Bible scholars today in all of the different denominations Nearly all of them choose some version other than the King James Version of the Bible. So when I make this next statement, please understand that I'm not saying that everybody that, uh, that uses one of these other versions is some kind of a nutcase or somebody that doesn't love God or anything like that. I'm just simply trying to get you to see that uh, that there's a problem in this area. Have you ever met a modernist that prefer, preferred the King James Version? I mean somebody that is way out there. The, the modernists that deny the Genesis account of creation and da-da-da-da. No, you never will either. You're not going to find any modernist that will endorse the King James Version of the Bible. They all embrace something else. Here's what I'm trying to get you to see. That ought to tell you something. You're not a modernist. You're not one of them. You don't believe what they believe. They Listen, they embrace that for a reason. And again, I go back. Whether their intent is to discredit and destroy the Bible or not, I'm not going to judge their motives. But their actions do exactly that. Now, let me mention one more thing, and I thought this was interesting. This is copyright information. Isn't it amazing that you say, well, I've got God's Word here, and it's God's Word, but I'm going to copyright it. 
Really? That's what they do. By the way, King James Version is not copyrighted. Do whatever you want. The NIV text may be quoted. Now, this, this is what they say. This is directly from them. The NIV text may be quoted in any form, written, visual, electronic, or audio, up to and inclusive of 500 verses without express written permission of the publisher, providing the verses do not amount to a complete book of the Bible, nor do the verses quoted account for 25% or more of the total text of the work in which they are quoted. When the NIV is quoted in works that exercise the above fair use clause, notice of copyright must appear on the title or copyright page of opposing screen of the work, whichever is appropriate as follows. And I don't know whether you can see or not, you've got to put all of this stuff with it. In other words, here, you know, here we are writing something, whether it's, you know, on the screen or whatever, and so we quote from it. And in order to show where we got it from, you got to put all of that on there. That's their way of saying we want credit for what we've done. Listen, buddy, I'm giving them credit for what they've done, and I don't like it one little bit. Because it's a bunch of rank modernists that did the translations. You look at it yourself. Do your own investigation. You'll come to the same conclusion. For the most part, these men were modernists. And it's a real easy... Uh, Real easy for me, as a pastor of a church where the last thing I want to do, where God says that He is not the author of confusion, to where these kids go to one Sunday school class, let's just suppose it's promotion Sunday. They've been over here in one class all this time, and there's a teacher using the King James Version. And then the next week they go over to another class, new teacher, New version of the Bible. These kids aren't so dumb that they can't figure this out. And the one says this is the Word of God, and the other says this is the Word of God. And they don't agree with each other. They both can't. How do you explain that to a kid? They both can't be the Word of God. So we've got a choice to make, folks. And I made that choice for me a long, long time ago. And I believe that the King James Version is by far the most accurate of all of the translations in the English language. Hands down, nothing else comes close to that. Now you say, well, Brother Stone, but I've heard you make reference to the Greek. You do that oftentimes whenever you're preaching and you'll say the Greek word means such and such. Yes, I do that. But understand this, when I do that, I do it for clarification and never for correction. You'll never hear me ever refer to the Greek or the Hebrew in trying to correct some supposed fallacy or error in the King James Version. It doesn't need correcting. It needs understood. You say... But man, it's so much more difficult to understand. Believe me, you don't want to go there. It is a proven fact by the so-called experts. Now, I can't attest to this because I'm not an expert, but it's a proven fact by the experts 
that the King James Version is on a grade level less than the modern versions. In other words, ought to be easier to understand. Oh, but you say you got the these and the thous, and, and that is so confusing, and we don't even talk like that today. And so why do we use those? Listen, those serve a good purpose. That's a, I, I could take another 15, 20 minutes talking about the these and the thous. They serve a good purpose. That's one of the benefits that the King James Version has over all of the other versions that do not use that. It tells you, for one thing, whether it's in the singular or the plural, and you don't have to figure it out. And that makes a big difference whenever you're trying to understand a verse of Scripture. I'm just trying to say that all of those arguments that you've heard about why it's better that we get some new, more modern version. Are you ready? Do you know the new version of the NIV is coming out in 2010, they say? I think it's 2010. It's in the works right now. Now, wait a minute. If I've already got a great version and everything, and if it's already the Word... What is this all about? I'm going to tell you what it's all about. It's all about money. It's exactly what it's all about. And there will be no end to all of the versions, one after another after another, as long as there are printing presses and businessmen and dishonest people. It's going to keep on keeping on. It's all about the almighty dollar. And, And I say to you, it's time that we drew the line and said, this is as far as we're going. This King James Version is the Bible that God has blessed in the English-speaking churches for all of these hundreds of years now. It's the Bible that God has used. And you look back at all of the famous missionaries and preachers and all of them, and you can look at their quotes and all of them preaching from it stood up and said, I believe this Bible and I have it in my hand is the holy, infallible, verbally, plenary-inspired Word of God. No question about it. And then you have the modernists come along and saying, wait a minute, all of those, all of those fellows were wrong. You've never had the real, true, accurate text to rely upon. Now we've got this work done by Westcott and Hort based on these older manuscripts. And we're going to... We're going to get, we're going to sell you a brand new, up-to-date version of God's Word where you don't, you don't have to use that old King James Version anymore. God is not trying to hide truth. God is working to reveal truth to us. And I believe anyone can, any Christian that is directed by the Spirit of God, you can understand the Bible. The only thing you need to understand is the English language. Guess what? They sell dictionaries everywhere. You can go to the dollar store and get a dictionary. I mean, that's all you need. You say, but I don't know the Greek and I don't need the, I know the Hebrew and what have you. And I, I'm not saying that doesn't help in many instances to, to clarify some things. But if you'll just take the English dictionary and get along with you and just God and the Bible and the dictionary, and you'll be amazed at what you can understand. 
You don't need somebody telling you what the Bible says when they don't even believe the first three chapters of Genesis and they don't even believe in the atonement and the vicarious death of Jesus Christ. And they come along and tell you that what you've got is not right. You need to use their version. Well, I wouldn't believe on them if, if my life depended on it. I wouldn't trust those fellows. I'll stick with the old book and the testimony of those that have used it down through the centuries. Folks, listen. I'm through. I'm not trying to be argumentative. Not at all. I'm, I'm simply trying to encourage you as God's people to do what is right and that we all be on the same page and that we clear up all of the confusion and again, I go back to what I said earlier. How can I expect... Let me tell you what. If you can prove to me there's one heir in all of the Bible, I'll quit preaching tomorrow. I'm through. Because if I can't believe all of it, I can't believe any of it. Amen. And I'm through. I'm done with it. I'll mark it off as nothing but a bunch of foolish nonsense if I can't trust it. I cannot afford to run the risk of doing something that's going to instill doubt in the minds of these boys and girls and bring them to that same point to where they're at a crossroads and they look at all of this and say, Wow, God's Word is full of airs, and how do I know it's God's Word? I mean, He's perfect. So that's what this is all about. And again, I say, you, you, you read whatever you want. I, I remember years ago, I think it was the Billy Graham crusade, they sent out the, what, what is known as the Amplified Bible, gave it away. I, you know, that was a great gesture on their part. They wasn't selling it. They just gave it away. Now, here's what you need to know about the Amplified Bible. The Amplified Bible is not a... Tra- and they admit it, by the way. It is not a translation of the Bible It functions more as a commentary of the Bible. Now, I could take the Amplified Bible and I could pick it up and I could begin to read there. And and by the way, I've done this. And and I would never get up here and you'll never hear me get up here and say, well, the Amplified Bible says thus and thus. I I would never do that. I'd never, you know, contribute to the confusion in that regards. But the Amplified Bible, in some instances, can be rather pleasant reading and, uh, and bring some, maybe some clarity to the English language and spark your, your thoughts and what have you. But it's not a translation of the Bible. You see, I can read Charles Haddon Spurgeon and his commentaries, and the best thing ever written on all of the Psalms is by Charles Spurgeon. Man, you, you can learn a lot reading what some of those old preachers have written. I mean, they were brilliant. Read it. Go for it. But whatever you do, don't ever take it as God's Word. I, I, hope, I really I hope this helps. Let me... Boy, and this is scary. And I'm going to do it anyway. Does anybody have a question? Yes.
Amen. That's right. Okay. Anybody else got a question? Or I, and, and, I, and I promise, if you do, I'm not going to. I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to berate you, or belittle you, or anything. We. I. I just want to. I want to get everybody on the same page, brother Fred. You said that exactly right, what it reports to do. And, and, and let me tell you, I, I thought whenever they originally started, because what they, what they said they were going to do is just they were going to take out some of the these and thous and clarify some issues. And, 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 and I don't think it's way off base or anything. So let me, let me say that first. At least, at least they basically stayed with the same stream of manuscripts and what have you, Okay. And I, I never thought a lot about it, and I don't have the notes before me, but uh, several years ago, a preacher up in Pennsylvania wanted me to come up there to their Bible conference. He said, I want you to preach about the fallacies of the New King James Version of the Bible. This, this was right when it first came out. And I said, okay. <laughs> I never, I hadn't even read the New King James Version. And there are some differences. I, uh, Again, I, I'm, I wouldn't make a big deal out of somebody having that Personally, I don't use it. I wouldn't use it myself. But uh, and that's why some of you sometimes you're sitting in the service and maybe somebody will say something or quote something and there's a thee or a thou that's left out. And listen, let me let me let me tell you this: we need to be Christian ladies and gentlemen about this, and let's don't don't go overboard just because there's a. a now, don't misunderstand. I'm scared to say this because somebody's going to misunderstand it. I don't believe you ought to change anything about the Word of God that changes the meaning of it. Are you with me? But you can use a different word sometimes to say exactly the same thing and you have not changed the meaning of it. And so, Brother Fred, that's the best way I know how to answer. And so, Brother Mike? <laughs> Good point. <laughs> Good point. Uh, it's really interesting to go back there and, uh, and 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 you think about Constantine and whenever uh, Constantine he here you got a pagan emperor that all of a sudden converted to Christianity all because he saw this in the sky da 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 and on and on and on and uh, so finally he said well I'm a Christian now and. So he's got to pick a Bible text, and he's having pressure exerted on him by Rome, and so so naturally he picks he picks the Bible that was you know pleasing to to the Roman Catholics and so forth. But it's like Brother Mike is saying, there's a lot of pressure on a lot of people back then as to what choice you made, and we got a different kind of pressure today, and I think the pressure is coming basically from those that that are unbelievers or those that are new believers or those maybe our young people and what have you, we, just, we want to assure them that whenever I stand up here and I say, this is God's holy, infallible Word, and it says, 
For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Ye must be born again that they'll know I'm telling them the truth. So, okay, anybody else before we dismiss? Brother Dwayne? Sure, I, yeah, I noticed that. Again, you go back to the copyright, the copyright laws and what have you, and so that's. One oh five, what? No, I don't endorse it. No, I don't. Now that's in there. Listen, if I tried to, and you notice in our tracks, if anybody finds tracks out there that's using some other version, you know, let me know. It. it Folks, the, the morning man, I have quotes in there a lot of times. And maybe the quote is taken from some article that I read. And they started, what they said was really great, but they started with, with a verse out of some modern version. And I, I generally, well, I always change it or I don't use it. I make a notation, and you've probably seen that, revised to agree or to suit or to meet with the King James Version of the Bible and what have you. But I mean, we've got to understand we absolutely cannot monitor every little old thing. We put our daily bread out there because it is, I think, the best little daily devotional booklet I've ever read in my life. I've been reading it since 1966. And, but as you go through it, you're right there. There's going to be some quotations down there. That's why we need to be discerning and uh, in regards to that. So that's why we're having this this message tonight. Okay, anybody else? Brother John? I think what I, I well, thank you. I, I I talked to Bev earlier, and I don't know whether she can probably figure it out. But I and I didn't give her time to do it. I think what I'm going to do is draw that up and see if she can put it on the computer where it's not my rapidly written, handwritten notes like I did on that. And we'll get it typed up and put it out there in some little track type form where it'll be available. And, and that, hopefully that will make it easier for people to understand that all of the Bibles come from one of those two streams of manuscripts. There's no third option. Okay. I hope it's been helpful. I really do. I pray that that's the case. And uh, so let's stand and we're going to be dismissed by prayer. Be praying in regards to the property situation. We're having this meeting tonight. We've got to, we've got to talk about, you know, what we're, what we're going to, what we're going to do, we, we don't have any offers on 